you could turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 22 this morning. And while you're turning there, you know, one of the toughest questions that any pastor ever gets asked is so simple, it can be summed up in two words. So what? What difference does a section of God's Word that we've studied actually make within our lives? Well, the answer to that question is really crucial, not just for pastors like me, but also for anyone that has a relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you hear God's Word, you should always be asking that question. What difference is this going to make in my life going forward? A, it's a great cure for what we call Monday morning amnesia. You know, that awkward moment where someone asks you the question, oh, I heard you went to church on Sunday. What did you learn? Oh, <laughs> I think it was something about the Bible that uh, just goes right over your head. Boy, the more you apply God's word, the more God's word is going to stick within your heart. As a matter of fact, if you want a crash course on getting the absolute most out of personal Bible study, you could do a lot worse than paying attention to what James had to say in James chapter 1 and verse 21. There he said, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, there's all kinds of best-selling Christian books out there that uh, claim to show you the way to the blessed life. But here we see the simplest and most direct path. A, hear God's word, but even more importantly, do God's word. Put into practice the principles you receive, and the Lord is going to station you directly under the spout where the glory comes out. And who wouldn't want to live a lifestyle like that? Well, this morning, we're going to get an opportunity to do just that. We're not only going to hear God's word, but we're also, even before you leave those double doors in the friendly confines of Calvary Christian Fellowship, you get an opportunity to actually put what we're learning today into practice. This morning, in a study we could call the Communion Connection, we're going to discover from Jesus' own point of view what communion is all about. Three very important things we're going to discover. First, we're going to see what communion doesn't do. Just the act of taking communion doesn't make you right with God, contrary to a lot of popular belief. Secondly, we're going to discover what commun communion does do, the incredibly vivid and visual picture that communion paints. We'll see what that picture is all about. But even more importantly, we're going to discover what communion can do in our lives. The absolute difference that communion makes when we receive it in the way which is intended, when we begin to reflect the reality that communion represents, but even more importantly, the living relationship, 
The intimacy that Jesus desires to have with his people is beautifully and vividly and wonderfully painted for us in the verses that we're going to explore today. We pick things up in Luke chapter 21 and verse 37. There we read, And in the daytime he, Jesus, was in the temple. But at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, I think this is a fascinating uh, little vignette in Scripture. And, and if you're like me, uh, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're more spiritual. But sometimes when I'm reading through the Bible, I'll come across two verses like we see in verses 37 and 38. And I go, yeah, 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 that's great. Let's get on to something more significant. But let's hold our horses for just a second here. These are really significant verses when you stop and let the Lord speak to you th through them. Notice, at this stage in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' days are numbered. He is less than 48 hours away from his date with being rejected, being arrested by a mob, being beaten, crucified, put through the mockery of a trial, nailed to a cross, bearing the sins of the world. If you knew you had 48 hours before your number was up, what do you suppose you would do with that time? Well, look what Jesus does with his time. He knows what awaits him, and yet what does he do? He commits himself to staying on track, to doing what he always did, which is what? Connecting people with the Word of God. Why do you suppose Jesus invested these precious hours in teaching a Bible study, for lack of a better term. Because Jesus realizes something I think we need to realize. There's only two things that you and I can, that can encounter here on earth that, that are really going to last forever. It's the Word of God and people. It only makes sense, if that's the case, that we need to invest ourselves in these kind of pursuits. You see, God doesn't want you to waste your time. In fact, time is a precious, priceless gift that God gives to each of us as his people. It's been said that time in our lives, like a coin, can be used in one of three ways. You can spend your time, you can waste your time, or you can invest your time. Well, I can't think of anything greater to invest our time in than loving people enough to share God's truth with them, the truth that transforms lives. Psalm 90 and verse 12, Moses prayed a powerful prayer. And Stop and think how our lives might be radically different if we prayed this prayer before we got going on our day. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. Well, Jesus did just that. He models for us that even when his number was up, he was going to stay on track. He was going to stay on course. Now, notice Jesus is a picture of laser-focused dedication here. But we also see in this section of Scripture, well, a study in contrasts, if you will. As opposed to Jesus' dedication, we also see a group of people that were beginning to lash out in desperation. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. 
which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now notice, along with Jesus staying on track, faithfully ministering the word of God, you've got some individuals who looked at Jesus as the biggest problem they've ever faced. If you've been with us in our study in the book of Luke, you know that Jesus had two main enemies. Number one were the Pharisees. They were the religious conservatives of Jesus' time. They were the ones who thought they were okay with God because they were keeping God's commands on the outside. Inside, they were full of corruption and dead men's bones, Jesus said, but they bought into the idea that it is always better to look spiritual than to be spiritual. And Jesus wasn't having it. Jesus did not endorse their steel-reinforced spiritual sensibilities. And so they decided either we go or he goes, and we're not going anywhere. The other enemies that Jesus had were the Sadducees, the religious liberals of Jesus' day, the aristocrats who controlled the Temple Mount, and we begin to understand that they had a bone to pick with Jesus for two main reasons. Number one, the Sadducees, because they were modernists, if you want to use that term, because they were liberals, rejected the idea of miracles. They rejected the idea of an afterlife. Well, if you followed along the life of Jesus in stereo, if you will, in HD, uh, and read the other gospel accounts, you know that one of the triggering events that set the Sadducees against Jesus was him refuting their doctrine. There was no resurrection, not just verbally, but personally. Remember, Jesus, according to John chapter 11, has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, you want to talk about putting to death the idea that death ends everything. That was pretty irrefutable proof. Remember, Jesus came after Lazarus had been dead for four days. He came to the tomb, and he asked that the tomb, uh, the stone over the tomb would be rolled away. And uh, one of Lazarus' sisters, I love the way the old King James puts it, said, uh, by now, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> we can't do that. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he perishes, yet will he live. And so Jesus ordered this, the uh, stone rolled away. And out comes Lazarus, waddling out, still wrapped up in grave cloths. He said, unloose him, let him go. Well, we're told that many of those who were undecided about Jesus believed in him there. But there were others that ran back to the spiritual leadership and said, uh, this guy's raising people from the dead. What are we going to do? And the Sadducees decided that if they let Jesus alone and he kept doing these kind of miracles, well, the Romans were going to get wind of it. And they were going to come and take away their position and their privilege and their perks. And so Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, actually prophesied, saying, you idiots know nothing at all. Better one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And so they decided. They were not only going to get rid of Jesus, but in John chapter 12, they decided they were even going to kill Lazarus so that there wouldn't be this exhibit A that there was a resurrection anymore. That's pretty desperate. The other thing that really cheesed the Sadducees off was, as you probably recall, one of the first things Jesus did when he hit town in Jerusalem for the Passover feast was go into the temple and clear out the money changers, the individuals that were selling sacrifices, preying on people's spiritual sensibilities 
to turn a filthy buck. Boy, talk about the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Still going on today. And Jesus wasn't having it. Again, Jesus drove out these money changers, and boy, you get between grifters and their grift, you're going to have problems. And so the Sadducees made up their mind that Jesus had to go. But what kept them from dispatching Jesus? They feared the people. One commentator I read said that the enemies of Jesus found themselves caught between the rock of ages and a hard place because they couldn't act as long as the people hung on Jesus' every word. And such an important illustration for us. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25 says that the fear of man brings a snare, but with the fear of the Lord, there's deliverance. At any given time, you and I are either playing to the crowds or following Jesus Christ, but we can't do both. You got to make up your mind one way or the other. And so Jesus always seems to corner us in that place. We have to make up our mind about whether we're going to actually walk with Jesus or we're not. Whether we're going to give our lives to the Lord, not just in the act of salvation, which is absolutely crucial, but each and every day turning our lives over to the Lord. Leaning on Him, looking to the leading of God's Spirit in our lives, moment by moment, challenge by challenge, day by day. Because you're either going to have faith in Jesus or you're going to fear people. And there's really no other third alternative. So <laughs> they are looking for any opportunity they can to get rid of Jesus. And one presents, look at verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, if you've ever uh, allowed these modern uh, retellings, if you will, of the life of Jesus to somehow color your take on who Judas Iscariot really was. Oh, he was misunderstood. Oh, he, he meant well. He was just sort of trying to push Jesus into exercising his power. And, you know, he was a revolutionary, and Jesus wasn't moving fast enough for him. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Why did Judas Iscariot betray Jesus? Because Satan had filled his heart. Satan had filled his heart? You know, when you hear that. A lot of us uh, think, oh, yeah, Judas is walking along, you know, going his merry way, you know, maybe singing Rock of Ages cleft for me. And then suddenly, bam, Satan comes out. Blah, 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 blah. Ah, now I'm evil, and I'm going to go betray Jesus. That, that's usually how it's presented to us, right? What does it mean that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot? How could Satan enter into Judas Iscariot? Jesus chose Judas Iscariot to be one of his inner circle, one of the 12. Judas had front row center seats to hear the most awesome teacher in the history of humanity break down the kingdom of God. One lack of information, right? Judas was used by God, seemingly, when he went out with the other disciples not only shared the gospel, but had that sharing of the gospel confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles. We look at that and we go, how could Satan enter into someone like that? Well, 
Jesus gives us an interesting answer and a convicting one, uh, if you're not careful, in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and verse 43. How could Satan enter someone like Judas Iscariot? There Jesus said, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall also be with this wicked generation. What is Jesus warning about here? Christianity, gang, is not a self-improvement project. Knowing Jesus as your Savior isn't, say, you know, going to some rally and crying crocodile tears and being given, you know, a list of things you put on the fridge with a vegetable magnet, all the things you're going to do for God and all the things you're not going to do anymore. And I promise I'm not going to drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. You know, sometimes people think that's what Christianity is all about. Now, you can do all those things, and good on you if you do, but whether you know God or not, it's a completely different issue. Whether you've actually received Jesus as your Savior and have put your trust wholly and completely, not in anything you do for God, but only on what God has done for you, that is the life-defining, dare I say, the eternal destiny-defining moment. And you can come to church every Sunday, and you can take communion when it gets passed around. And you can tell yourself, because I do these things, I must be right with God. Well, dare I say, if Judas Iscariot was visiting here and you were to compare spiritual resumes, Judas would have you beat by a country mile. But he didn't know the Lord. He didn't trust Jesus. And because of that emptiness, well, nature abhors a vacuum and Satan was more than happy to fill it. Oh, be very careful when you're hanging out around religious people. Be very careful when you start to maybe lean on belonging to a church as your identity rather than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Be very, very careful that you find yourself not looking at what people think about you as the validation for your walk with God, but only what God says about you through his word. Judas made that crucial error, and it ended up costing him deeply. Now, notice, they were glad, they agreed to give him money, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him in the absence of the people. So here we see a really important insight into taking communion. We've got to ask ourselves why we're taking communion, even before we get close to this. Are we doing it to somehow buy ourselves another month of peace within our heart? Saying, well, I'm no great shake spiritually. You know, I'm kind of filled with hate and bitterness towards other people. And, you know, Lord knows if uh, everything I did and the quiet and the dark and so on came into light, I'd be in big time trouble. But I took communion. So that must mean I'm okay. I took communion. Putting your faith in a ritual like communion, right? is a dead-end street. If you don't have Jesus in your heart, if you've not received him as your savior, all you're gonna get out of this is a cracker snack and some grape juice to wash it down. 
That's it. But God has better things for us than that. So if a ritual, if even a religious resume like Judas had can't save, well, what does communion do? Why do we do this in the first place? Well, communion needs to be understood like a lot of the acted out pictures we find in the Word of God that God gives to us. God gives us these horizontal things to do, right, in order to point us to a greater heavenly reality. And we see this operating on a number of levels at this point in Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. Now notice, two things are going on in Jerusalem at this point that a lot of us as believers in Christ really probably haven't taken the time to understand. And you miss out on a lot if you don't grasp what's happening here. The first thing that was going on was the day of unleavened bread. By the day of unleavened bread, it means it was the culminating day of a week-long ritual called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is described for us in the, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16. And you can look this up on your own time, but for our uh, sake of time here this morning, let me give you the Cliff Notes version. During Unleavened Bread, Unleavened Bread was to commemorate an important part of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. It was called the Bread of Affliction and the Bread of Haste for a couple of reasons. First of all, what would happen was at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, every piece of bread that had leaven in it, uh, leaven is another name for yeast, any bread that rises, if you will, like Wonder Bread, building 12 uh, strong bodies 12 ways, uh, any kind of bread like that had to be completely eliminated from your house. Not only would you clean out the pantry of any leavened bread, no monkey bread or anything like that, no Hawaiian, King's Hawaiian bread, nothing like that, uh, you had to go through your entire house and make sure there wasn't even a crumb of leavened bread. Everything had to be swept out. Then for seven days, you would eat unleavened bread, what we know as matzah in our day and age. Now, uh, before COVID, one of the things I used to really enjoy about our communion was that we were able to have a tray of matzah bread up here for people to be able to take. Well, because of concerns and sanitary uh, issues and so on, you know, we have these self-contained cups now. But matzah was a really interesting thing. This was all you ate for seven days. And a couple things jump out at us about matzah. First of all, it had no leaven in it. Leaven in Scripture is always associated with the invisible yet corrupting influence of sin in the life of people or a group. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul described it. You can read that through on your own time if you want to go deeper on all of this. And so this matzah bread would represent the idea that God's desire for his people was to eliminate sin within their lives. But it goes even deeper than that. Uh, the, the leaven was called the bread of affliction. Very interesting how in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, Peter says, the one who has suffered has ceased from sin. 
In other words, if you want to have something come into your life that's going to make you get serious about your walk with God, uh, ask God to bring some suffering your way. Uh, you know, ask God to uh, bring you to a place where you're looking across the table and the doctor says, I'm sorry, but you have a fatal disease. Man, I'll tell you, there is nothing that focuses the mind and the attention on what really matters than suffering in this life. And so the bread of affliction we see this. We also see it as the bread of haste. It was a picture of suddenness. You didn't have time to let the bread rise, and so you kept the matzah bread around. Well, what a beautiful picture of the fact that in the Christian life, we're reminded that Jesus reserves the right to come back for us at any moment. We need to be prepared for that return at any time. So we see that even in that symbolism there. But even more importantly, and most vividly, in the matzah bread, we see a vivid picture of salvation itself. Why do I say that? Well, you'll notice two things about that matzo bread. Number one, it's striped. See the stripe marks on it? And it's pierced. Now, if you talk to a Jewish person who makes matzo bread and ask them, why do you stripe and pierce the matzo bread? They've got an answer for you. We don't know. We have no idea. It's tradition, and that's what they do, right? But we know. Remember what Isaiah 53 said about Messiah in verse 4. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a powerful thing, and Jesus was fulfilling it at this point. But notice at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover may must be killed now passover was all about deliverance from death if you want to read the first passover it was recorded for us in exodus chapter 12. but prior to the time that god was going to visit upon the egyptians pharaoh refusing to let the people go hardening his heart moses warned them that there was going to be a plague to end all plagues that was coming their way the angel of death himself would visit egypt and slay the firstborn of Egypt in one night. There was only one way out of it. If you wanted death to pass over you and your house, you were to take a lamb into your home for four days so that you could get to know the lamb. It was almost treated as a pet. You were to inspect that lamb for any possible defect. It had to be free from any kind of fault or flaw. And then that lamb would be slain. The blood of the lamb would be placed on the lentil, that is the crossbar top the top of a door, and on the doorposts. When the angel of death would see the blood of the lamb, it would pass over. Death would not be visited upon that house. I always think that's fascinating. On the lentil and on the doorpost. Boy, you connect the dots, and what do you see? The cross. God wasn't being very subtle there. And, and there's even more depth you can get into as far as the whole Pesach or Passover Seder ceremony. But suffice it to say, this is what was coming down. No wonder when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, what did he say about him in John chapter 1 and verse 29? Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to be the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover Seder celebration, which always raises a question in some people's minds. Okay, if that's in fact the case, why don't we celebrate unleavened bread? Why don't we celebrate the Passover? Why 
do we seemingly leave these wonderful rituals behind? Well, and there are those in what is called the Hebrew Roots Movement who think that we should celebrate these things. And if you want to celebrate uh, unleavened bread and eat only matzah for seven days and your heart's in the right place, knock yourself out. You can certainly do that. If you want to go to a Passover Seder celebration, there's plenty of them that are available. Jews for Jesus does a wonderful job of uh, presenting a Passover Seder, revealing the Messiah. You can even look it up online and follow along with it. And if, uh, again, on Passover, you'd like to go through that, then by all means, I think you'll find it very edifying. But the reason we do not continue to celebrate unleavened bread or Passover, the reason we never see it commanded or instructed uh, or even modeled, if you will, by the early church in the book of Acts or further explained in the epistles is this. Jesus has fulfilled these rituals. In other words, he completed and culminated all of these things. And, and we've got to be very careful when we start going down that road of saying, well, but it, it's so spiritual and, you know, it's so edifying. Everybody should be doing it. And then we find ourselves saying, yeah, everyone should be doing it. And unfortunately, I've seen some people who go down this path who say, if you're not celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and you're not celebrating Passover, somehow you're dishonoring God. You're an inferior Christian, or maybe you're not even a Christian at all. Whoa, where, how do we get there? Well, here's how you don't go down that path to legalism. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. You see, whenever we get involved with rituals, communion included, we run the risk of falling in love with a shadow rather than the substance. And this is what I mean. You know, imagine a couple who are going to get married. They hadn't seen each other for months, but they were going to see each other again on their wedding day. And, and if you're like me, you know, Pam and I, when we got married, we did the traditional thing. I didn't see her uh, prior to her uh, coming uh, down the aisle in her wedding dress. And I'm just so glad we did that because you could knock me over with a feather. She's so beautiful. I just still think of that. And I, you know, just a big mess up there going, oh, I can't believe how beautiful she is. You know, could you imagine doing that? Right? You haven't seen each other for six months. Your bride comes down there. The, the pastor explains all the things, exchange the vow. You know, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. Could you imagine how weird it would be if the husband looked at the shadow of the wife there on the, the uh, stage and bowed down and kissed the shadow? The wife would be going, I'm right here. You see, these things, as wonderful as they are, are shadows. They can give you an outline, if you will. They can reveal some things to you, and that's very important. But the substance of these things is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we have to be very, very careful not to go down that particular path. Now, communion, again, be very careful when you take communion because communion works the very same way. Communion shows us. Now, please understand this. Communion shows us a vivid insight into God's provision that forgives our sins and reconciles us to himself and demonstrates the width and length and depth and height of the love of God. It can give you an insight, but it is not the provision itself. As I said, 
unless you come to God through faith in Jesus' finished work, this and taking this and thinking this makes you right with God is only going to lead you farther away from him. It's going to have you put your faith and your trust in all the wrong things. It's going to cause you to chase shadows and miss the substance. So we need to be very careful about that. So, <laughs> all that said, okay, we're going to do communion. Why do it? Why celebrate it at all? Well, here we see a very interesting insight into why we should celebrate communion. Then came the day of unleavened bread with the when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house in which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. So he went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, why this skullduggery going on here? Why this, uh, you know, kind of uh, elaborate kind of ruse, if you will? Uh, why not just tell the disciples, hey, go there, find the upper room, get the Passover going. Remember what's going on with Judas, right? Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Why are they paying Judas big bucks to betray Jesus? Remember, they're afraid of the crowd. They want to isolate Jesus. They don't want to grab Jesus while everyone's hanging on his every word. There's going to be a riot, and they don't want that kind of a mess. So they want to find Jesus when he's alone, just with his disciples. Twelve disciples, we can dispatch them, no problem. But we don't want to take him in an open-air setting, if you will. Now, what better place to betray Jesus, if that's your agenda, than the Passover Seder, right? Just Jesus, just his 12 disciples, contained upper room, nobody has to be the wiser. I'm sure Judas was like, <laughs> can't wait to find out where that upper room's gonna be and where we're gonna celebrate the Seder because I can have my goon squad waiting when they get there. So God provides a way around it. He said, uh, when you see a man carrying a pitcher of water. How many people in Jerusalem would be carrying pitchers of water? A lot, but not a lot of men. Carrying water in that culture was considered women's work. Don't stone me. I'm just telling you the way it used to be. <laughs> to see a man carrying water was very unusual, very uh, unlikely during that time. And so when uh, the disciples saw this guy, well, whoa, look at that. And he led him right to the place where they were to prepare the Passover. You know, what I love about this is there's a real interesting principle here that I think can encourage us in these crazy days we live in. There are so many people that are worried about the elites. They are worried about the Uniparty. They're worried about the, uh, the World Economic Foundation. They're worried about the UN. They're worried about the Illuminati. Uh, you, you name the nebulous uh, behind the scenes power group that seems to be pulling all the strings in our day and age. And, uh, you know, it's just funny uh, how many of these things we used to say, oh, that's the stuff of crackpots and conspiracy theorists, and now we see it just on the headlines of the news these days. And there's an awful lot of people get really nervous about the people 
that are in power. And it doesn't matter what side of the political agenda you're on. That, that, that scares people. But you know what? Just like the powers that be in Jesus' day were utterly thwarted by God's wisdom, the powers that be in our day will be utterly thwarted by God's wisdom. You know, I, I love what Psalm 33, verses 10 through 11 says. This is such a beautiful passage to commit to memory because it's going to save you from some Malox moments these days. It says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, and he makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. But the counsel of the Lord endures forever, and the plans of his heart are to all generations. God always gets it right. Now, I don't worry what these people are doing. Man, my God's bigger than any Illuminati you want to mention. And his will is going to get done. So they found it, just as he said, and they prepared the Passover. Now look how this institution of what we call communion or the Lord's Supper goes down. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with them. He said, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The first reason that we celebrate communion is this. Jesus was crazy about it. He was passionate about it. You know, he was saying, oh, I've, I've longed. I mean, the language here is, is incredibly vivid. fervent desire. I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why was Jesus so intensely interested in what is about to occur here? Well, understand something. It was not only going to be something that his disciples could take away that would vividly portray for them and explain to them the incredible suffering that he was about to go through and the triumph of the resurrection. But it was also something that was going to foretell Jesus' greatest moment of glory we see in the book of Revelation. And no, it is not when he returns riding on a white horse to wipe out the Antichrist in Revelation 19. One of the greatest moments of Jesus' glory we see in the book of Revelation is in Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus first comes on the scene in heaven. How does he reveal himself? As a lamb that was slain. You see, properly understood, communion not only points you to the past and what God has done for you, but it also reminds us of the prospect that we have because not only is Jesus going to be glorified, if you belong to Jesus, if you've received him in your heart as your Savior, you're going to have front row center seats to see Jesus in all of his glory. Boy, isn't that a great reality check for crazy times like these. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, careful with this. This is not communion yet. The cup that Jesus is taking is the final of four cups that were drank during the Passover Seder celebration. The final cup that is drank in the classic Passover Seder celebration is called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption spoke about God setting slaves free in a physical sense in Egypt. But what Jesus was doing was elevating this cup and saying there is a greater redemption that I am going to work out within your lives, freedom from sin, Satan, self, and death. And so Jesus culminates, in a sense, fulfills that Passover Seder celebration. Then in verse 19, we get to what we would call our celebration of communion itself. It says, and he took bread, 
gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. You see, here we see the two significances of what communion is all about. When we take communion, we recreate, in a sense, this encounter that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. And there's one word that gets repeated over and over and over again, isn't there? Do you pick it up? Remember. Do this in remembrance of me. When we partake of the bread, we remember that Jesus died for us bodily. That's why he said, this bread is my body. Not that some mystical, magical thing happens and suddenly this becomes flesh. No, Jesus said, you know, these words are spirit and they're life. You know, we're not talking about some kind of transubstantiation, if you want to use that term. But we are talking about a transforming truth that will rock your life if you grasp it. Jesus didn't save you at arm's length. Jesus didn't sit in a comfortable throne in heaven and just say, well, you know, I'm all powerful, so well, your sins are gone. What was necessary to forgive your sins? Jesus had to physically take your place and my place. That's why he was born in a manger. That's why he became a man. As a man, he could live a perfect life and lay that perfect life down for you and for me. When we take that bread, we remember the enormity of that sacrifice. We remember that every time one of those cruel nails was driven through Jesus' arms and through his ankle, every gasping breath he struggled to have while he was suffering on the cross, every time he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was taking your sins and my sins upon himself, not at arm's length, but personally. In the same way, we are told, this, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Understand something. If there was any other way to get us to heaven, God would have done it. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus praying not once, not twice, but three times. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup never passed. Why? Because as Simon Peter remarked, you were not redeemed from your aimless way of life with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. When we take this cup, what we're saying is, Jesus, my only hope of forgiveness, my only hope of righteousness, my only answer to Billy Graham's famous question, if you were to stand before God today and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? The only answer that will carry that day is, I don't deserve to be here, but I believe your son suffered and died and shed his blood, gave his life so that I could have life. I've trusted in him. If that's your answer, God will say, enter in. If you say, well, I took communion. Uh, I sat through long sermons at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Doesn't that count for something? I put something in the offering box occasionally, less than you probably think, but I, you know, 
anything else like that that so many people are counting on to make them right with God. Some people say, well, you know, if God grades on the curve, I mean, God doesn't grade on the curve. Only perfect people go to heaven. And there's only one way to be, there's only two ways to be perfect. Either live a perfect life, that excludes all of us, or put your faith and trust in the only one who lived a perfect life. That's what communion's all about. Which brings us to the so what. Now we get a chance to do it. Now you get an opportunity to put into practice these things which we have learned in God's word. What do we learn? First of all, don't kid yourself that just going through this ritual somehow makes you right with God. It doesn't. We don't do this for acceptance with God. We do it from acceptance with God. And there's only one way that you and I can find acceptance with God. The Bible says, to as many as received him, put their faith and trust in Jesus. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Can you point to a time in your life where you actually made that conscious decision to say, Jesus, you're my only hope of heaven. Jesus, I believe you died for me. Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead so that I could have life. That's it. Well, if you can say yes to that, then this is for you. Secondly, understand something. God gives us this ritual in the here and now, not just so that we can do something Jesus commanded and Jesus was excited about and Jesus was all over, but to point us to a greater reality. And you don't have to necessarily wait for heaven to see that greater reality. When you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in heaven, you're going to be tripped out. I'm going to be tripped out. Heaven itself, angels are tripped out by all of it. Don't get me wrong. But the more we begin to understand how much God loves us, the more we begin to understand the awesome price that was paid to save us, the less time we're going to spend dinking around with a bunch of stuff that really just doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It's traveling light, you see. It's understanding what really matters in this life. The only thing that really matters in the final analysis is this. Did you live your life in such a way that you walked hand in hand with Jesus through each day? You know, if that's what communion's all about to you, then that's why we call it celebrating communion. It's not a dour, sour thing. It's bittersweet for sure, because every time I look at these elements, and I hope you do too, I, there's part of my heart that breaks. It just says, God, I am so sorry that my life has been lived in such a way that I put your son on the cross. It wasn't the Romans that killed Jesus. It wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. So did you. And when I look at that, there is that bitterness, you know, that, that, that his blood was shed. And, and if that doesn't break your heart, well, then you just don't know Jesus. But if on the other side of the coin, you realize that he did that willingly, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy? The joy of seeing you home in heaven. This is a preview of coming attractions, guys. Let's pray and allow the Lord to speak to us about this awesome privilege we are entering into that we call communion today. Lord, thank you that you've rescued us from ritual and routine, from spiritual pride and pompousness. God, thank you that communion is the great humbler and the great leveler, because as we take communion, we fully acknowledge <laughs> if it's up to us to get to heaven, we're not going to make it. But if it's up to you to get us to heaven, then we're already in. Lord, if we have put our faith and our trust in religion, in church membership, in, in people's opinions about us, 
in a list of performances or, or ledgers on a, on a financial log uh, to try to justify ourselves and buy ourselves 24 hours of a clear conscience. We repent of that right now. We come to you, and all we can do is receive. All we can do is revel in this revelation that you've given to us of the width and length and depth and height of your love. So allow us, Lord, to receive this communion in a way that honors you. And I pray if there are any within the sound of my voice who've never made that decision to receive you as their Savior, Lord, please don't let them just do this to follow a crowd. Please don't let them do this just so that they could win the favor or the approval or get out of an afternoon of argument with someone that is pressuring them or pushing them towards being a Christian. Lord, I pray that right now they would just simply say to you, Lord, I want to know you in my life. I realize it was my sin that put you on the cross. And I realize that by taking communion, what I'm saying with my actions is the attitude that saves my soul. Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you alone. Lord, I pray for those who might be praying this prayer for the first time, that they would receive you into their heart, that they would allow you, the true and living God, to give them that assurance. And may this just be a life-changing experience, you communicating your, your amazing love to them in a wonderful way. Do that for all of us, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.